Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation, a bi-weekly podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Kendall Kosai, Director of Policy for the ADL Western Division. In this episode, we look back one year since the January 6th insurrection by speaking with Mark Picavich, Senior Research Fellow for ADL Center on Extremism. Our conversation touches on extremism, the insurrection, as infamous Twitter account. Welcome, Mark, to today's show. Let's get started. Mark, thank you for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time, and I'm really excited to talk with you. Today's topic is pretty dark, so let's start off with something relatively light. And as they say, one does not simply become a senior research fellow at ADL. So can you talk about your journey to the organization and how did you really get into this work? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I never planned to sort of become an expert on extremism and terrorism. That was not in the cards for me at all. My original specialty and my professional background is as a military historian. Through some coincidences, I ended up taking a very different path. My dissertation happened to be on the historical militia, like the Minutemen of the American Revolution. And this just happened to be at a time when these right-wing groups first started popping up around the country, this is the mid-1990s, calling themselves militias and claiming to either be the historical militia or descended from the historical militia, neither one of which is true. These are just armed gangs with guns, right? And so I got interested in just to debunk some of their ahistorical or pseudo-historical claims. But as I did so, I find myself, you know, these guys were kind of interesting and scary people. And I found myself wondering, you know, curious about what they believed in and what sort of things they were doing and what other groups and individuals were there out there like this. And without ever making a conscious decision, I found myself developing a second area of specialization on essentially right-wing extremism in the United States. And that might have been nothing more than sort of a hobby, except not too long afterwards, the Oklahoma City bombing occurred on April 19th, 1995, killing 168 men, women, and children and injuring hundreds more. And it was perpetrated by anti-government extremists. And I, and I realized there was a need for more information on these folks and that, that I had been studying them. And so I did something in the summer of 1995, which is routine now, but at the time was extremely unusual. I actually created a website called the Militia Watchdog about anti-government extremism and other types of right-wing extremism. And this was at a time when the web was so tiny, I literally could look, it did, I did look at every single mention of the word militia on the entire internet. That is how tiny the internet was in 1995. And I put the site up and I put, you know, all sorts of research and writing about extremism on there over the next few years. And that brought me to the attention of some people. Again, this is in the wake of Oklahoma City, that horrific tragedy, putting together a Justice Department program designed to train uh, senior state and local law enforcement officials on domestic terrorism. And they needed a subject matter expert on right-wing extremism and me to come on board you know, having seen my website and, and deciding that uh, I knew what I was talking about. And so I became part of this program. And for the next five years, I would go around the country with the FBI and with some other experts and train law enforcement on extremism and terrorism. And in the summer of 2000, it looked like that that program was going to be canceled by Congress, that Congress was going to stop funding it. 
because, you know, it was five years since Oklahoma City bombing. So he had solved terrorism, right? And right at that time, my, my friends from the ADL told me that, well, hey, you know, Mark, there's actually a position open, which would be perfect for you. You should come and work with us. And so I, I did. I came in to head the fact-finding department, which was the name was subsequently changed to the Investigative Research Department, which sounds sexier. It headed that department for many years. And then after a few years, I was also became a director of the Center on Extremism and did that for many years, too, until in 2016, I decided I wanted to spend more time focusing on research and writing, not so much managerial and bureaucratic stuff. And so I suggested, let's create a position, see your research fellow that would allow me to do that. And so for the past five years, again, still for ADL, I've been a senior research fellow. And so I've actually worked for ADL 21 years now. It's been a long, interesting journey. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you certainly have had a very interesting journey and you've kind of been covering this topic for a, a while now. And, you know, even before the internet, it seems that you were kind of really interested in this topic. Can you talk about what that process looked like? Because today, you know, we, we have the internet and these folks, they they love posting things on, on the internet, right? They're, they're not exactly the brightest tools in the shed in terms of posting incriminating evidence against themselves on the internet. So I, I'm wondering for you, you know, before the internet even came to be, I'm wondering what was that process like? What, what did it look like? And what kinds of tools did you have at your disposal? Because I mean, these, again, these, these folks before they and I existed, they, they still existed, right? Extremism was always around. Sure. And sort of the information ecosphere for right-wing extremists and other types of fringe groups and movements was very different in the pre-internet era. You know, obviously a lot of information was shared via print publications, books and tracts and flyers and newsletters and newspapers and pamphlets and so forth. For a lot of right-wing extremists, by the early to mid-1990s, shortwave radio had become a very popular medium. Shortwave radio is like where you could hear the BBC and Radio Moscow. It's world band radio. The signals propagate all over the world. And the FCC allows there to be domestic shortwave radio stations set up, just like AM and FM. Only most people don't have shortwave radio, so they don't even know these exist. But there are a number of stations, and some of them would sell airtime to extremists. And so anti-government extremists, white supremacists, fringe religious groups, all sorts of all sorts of crazy characters started broadcasting on shortwave radio, which was very cheap. Plus, your message could be heard throughout the whole country, or at least most of it. So that was that was big. And computer bulletin boards dial-in computer bulletin boards where someone would set up their computer to a phone line and other people could call in to that phone line with a 300 baud modem and very slowly, you know, download documents or things like this, sort of a precursor to the internet and, you know, sharing, selling or sharing VHS videotapes with extremist presentations. You know, there were all these different things that they would do. Now, I will say when I started looking into extremism, which was 1994, 27 years ago, they feel extremely old and senile. Extremists were already online. It's just the online venue was a lot smaller and looked a lot different than it did today. But Usenet, which is a collection of discussion forums, kind of similar today, um, was very active starting in the 1980s even. And a lot of extremists were on Usenet, especially Holocaust deniers were on Usenet. And the first white supremacist website was started in the spring of 1995 
just a couple months before I started my own website. It was Stormfront, which actually still exists today, 26 years later. And there were anti-government extremist websites getting started at that time too. So at the time I started, you know, extremists had discovered the internet and were just starting to get into it. So essentially, my professional career has been more or less synonymous with the sort of modern extremist online experience. But it's, you know, the internet has basically killed most extremist print publications, at least in terms of like newsletters and magazines and newspapers. And it also killed most extremist shortwave broadcasting because you could do the same thing over the internet even cheaper and possibly reach even more people. Um, so the internet has changed for extremists, just like it's changed things, you know, for so many regular folks. Yeah, so let's talk about the internet for a second, because as you've done this work for many years, you've also amassed a massive uh, Twitter following. I looked today, this morning, and you have over 40,000 people <laughs> that follow you, if you can believe that. You know, and, and your account is really, really interesting, right? You you talk about anything from magic cards to extremism to Dungeons and Dragons to sovereign citizens. I mean, it runs the gamut, right? And you probably have one of the most, if not most interesting Twitter accounts in ADL Twitter sphere. And so, you know, I'm curious, how have you really amassed such a, a large Twitter following over, you know, since you've had an account? Yeah, well, I, you know, I never really expected this. I got a Twitter account, but I was mostly using it just to be able to look at extremists. I mean, it wasn't until 2015 when ADL started encouraging its employees to participate in social media that I decided to become active on Twitter. And in 2015 and 2016, I started posting regularly and have done so since then. And what I, I liked about Twitter was... You know, in particular, it was great to be able to promote ADL um, reports or articles or, you know, wonderful things that we were doing. And, you know, I've, I've retweeted Mary Cyphers a number of, you know, a lot of the things that your office has been doing a number of times, for example. But Twitter was also a place where, again, I've been doing this 27 years. When I started, you had to walk five miles in the snow to research extremists. You know, that's how long ago it was. But in that time period, you know, I've amassed all sorts of little tidbits of information or, um, like, like I've got a list of, of, of like 50 dentists who have gotten arrested for being involved in the sovereign citizen or tax protest movements, you know, extremist dentists, most people don't think of, or all these other little things, some of them funny, some of them scary, some of them just obscure, that I will never be able to put in a report or an article, right? They just don't fit for that. But they're interesting. And I like, you know, I like communicating them. And Twitter is a great venue for talking about some of these things. And, you know, because I've been doing this for a long time and I, I like explaining things, I, you know, I, I do this when I train law enforcement, I've trained nearly 20,000 law enforcement officers. I do this when I talk to journalists, you know, I like explaining extremism and terrorism to people and Twitter gives me an opportunity, you know, to talk about this subject and to interact with people who also have an interest in that subject. So I'm not just broadcasting out, I'm actually having conversations with people and I really like that aspect of it. And I think that's what actually made me popular on Twitter, that I wasn't, you know, a lot of people get on Twitter and they just pronounce things, right? Or they announce things. But it's a one-sided, it's a sort of a one-sided sort of thing. It's from them to everybody else. But I liked having conversations and discussions on Twitter. That's just the way I've always been. I mean, I first got online in 1991. I've always had discussions and conversations online. 
And so it was just naturally for me to do that on Twitter. And people like it when people listen to them and listen to their opinions and, and answer questions and things like that. And so I think that's what appealed to a lot of people. And I think that's what helped me get a following. And it's nice that there are you know, so many people out there also interested and concerned about issues like extremism, hate crimes, prejudice, anti-Semitism, terrorism. It's bad that people have to be interested in that. I mean, it's bad that, that those subjects exist, but it's nice that you know, I can help people sort of understand these subjects and pass on some interesting information or tidbits or, you know, help them satisfy their curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I love that you engage your audience. I mean, these are real people replying to your oftentimes snarky tweets, right? Rather than having these some of these folks who are kind of the run-of-the-mill bots that that kind of just try to troll you all the time. I think we get more of that, that than anything else. But I think for you, you have real people that, that are actually replying to you or talking to you and asking you questions. And I, you know, I, I think the way that you communicate your work is really key because I think you point out how preposterous it is sometimes. I mean, who, who knew, again, who knew there were extremist dentists out there? And, and I think that those are the kinds of things that people are just like, wow, this is so interesting. And you know, so let, let's fast forward to January 6th, right? 2021, you know, all the all these years of doing all, all your research and, and investigations into extremism. And, you know, in the country, stop the steal protests are happening. They're kind of popping up all over the country. And, and I remember on January 6th, I was watching possibly the most iconic building in the United States. I get its windows smashed and, you know, being a mask, but a huge group of people. Uh, just surrounding the building. And, you know, I've been in that building many times before. I know how secure it is. And I'm just shocked, right? But it, and it almost felt really surreal in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, but ADL's Center on Extremism had been watching this and kind of keeping tabs on this for a while and leading up to the day of January 6th. So can you talk a little bit about what you were seeing leading up to that day? And had you seen anything like it before? Sure. Well, I first I want to say I want to give credit to some of my brilliant colleagues at the Center of Extremism who are granularly tracking people who said that they were going to be all sorts of different types of extremists who said that they were going to be showing up on January 6th and, you know, really were able to give ADL a good understanding of how problematic January 6th could be and, you know, allowed us to you know, issue a warning for law enforcement about that. And so I want to give them full credit because they were doing that. I was not doing that sort of granular tracking. But like most Americans, I was really concerned about everything that had happened from the election through early January, where there were clearly people, you know, first of all, who were just not prepared to accept the results of the Democratic election. And second, there were people, including, you know, all the way up to Donald Trump, who were spreading lies and misinformation and conspiracy theories about the election you know, designed to delegitimize it, you know, which is extraordinarily problematic and designed to make people angry and designed to incite people. And so January 6th, you know, which was the day that Congress was meeting to, to sort of officially certify the results of the Electoral College votes, it was almost sort of like a last chance for these people to do something. And so, you know, we were concerned that there would be protests, that the protests could become violent. You know, it was people who wanted to cause trouble could easily show up there. and Some were being encouraged to show up there. None of us, you know, could have predicted exactly what would have happened there, that the Capitol itself would have been physically stormed and, you know, essentially taken over and, and our nation's leaders just, you know, 
missing, being apprehended, you know, being caught by these people, um, kidnapped by these people just by a hair's breadth and the vice president, you know, as well. And, you know, even someone as jaded as I was, with all the, the decades of experience that I have with extremism, this was shocking. This was, this was something we hadn't seen before. And the fact was, you know, you know, we have identified hundreds and hundreds of the people who took part in those, in those riots. And many of them came from extremist groups, anti-government extremist groups, white supremacist groups or movements, various conspiracy theories, other fringe groups. But a lot of them, the majority of them, were not from traditional extremist groups or movements. They were people who had become radicalized with a sort of new form of a new type of radicalization. You could sort of call them Trumpist extremists, uh, radicalized by a steady spread of lies and misinformation and conspiracy theories about Trump and about the election, and really buying into sort of a cult of personality around Trump, where they weren't just simply Trump supporters, of which there are tens of millions of Trump supporters. These were people who had become so far gone, they were willing to put Trump above their own party. They were willing to put Trump above their country and, you know, actually interfere with a democratic election. And, you know, this is the end result of years of disturbing and dangerous polarization in our country, where the left and the right have both moved away from the center, but especially the right has, has moved much further towards the, the extremes in this country and, you know, we saw the results of that polarization, that dangerous polarization on January 6th. And I'm just, you know, I'm grateful that nobody in Congress nor the vice president were actually caught by these people. I'm saddened for the loss of life and the injuries that did occur, but it could have been a lot worse. So I'm grateful that it wasn't worse. And I'm grateful that the Metro PD was able to respond and help the Capitol Police Department and finally, you know, regain control of Congress and restore order you know, so that the certification could take place. At the time, I was also really pleasantly surprised to see a bipartisan, strong bipartisan condemnation of what happened on January 6th. But I've been disappointed over the past 12 months to see many conservatives, many Republicans actually walk that condemnation back and try to minimize or downplay what happened on January 6th, or even in some cases, defend or embrace some of the seditionists who took part on January 6th. That's been very unfortunate. And that doesn't, that doesn't speak very optimistically about the future. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what January 6th was actually like for you, right? I think it was kind of an all hands on deck kind of moment for the organization, probably especially for you and, and the team at the Center of Extremism. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like from, because the insurrection itself, you know, the, the breach of the building was only a, a couple hours, right? But the, but the entire day itself was just littered with a number of different events that, that happened in, in DC. And so can you talk a little bit about what that day was, that was like for you? Sure. Well, you know, I, you know, this was on a weekend and some of my colleagues were going to be spending that day paying attention to what happened to see if there were any problems, you know, hopefully there wouldn't be, but they were there, they were going to look at it to see if there were any problems. And, and again, I was not one of those people, but I checked in on what was happening earlier on in the morning and I saw some of the big protests, the nonviolent protests. And then I went about my day. And then several hours later, I check in again. And all of a sudden I see Congress under attack, which, you know, it was sort of a, you know, a, a drop everything sort of moment. 
And, you know, I ended up spending the rest of the day with my eyes and ears glued to the television and my fingers feverishly working the keyboards, trying to figure out who was there, what was happening, you know, how this had actually occurred. And, you know, a lot of us at ADL were like that. The, this, the center on extremism was made for events like this. It's unfortunate that there has to be a center on extremism at the ADL, but it allowed us to be right on top of it. And so even on that day, we were identifying the symbols that were being displayed by different types of extremists to sort of help us identify who those extremists were, what groups we could identify, what players we could identify. And then from that time afterwards, we began to you know, individually identify as many participants as, as we could. And, you know, we're actually quite, quite successful, you know, in that. And we continue to work on things related to January 6th up to this day, and not just the center of extremism either. I mean, ADL just recently, you know, has helped the attorney general of Washington, D.C. sue a number of the players on January 6th. Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Militia, a wide variety of figures are being sued over their violent role in the riots. And ADL is operating as co-counsel. So all of our all of our attorneys and with help from the Center on Extremism, you know, are going to be participating in this, you know, important lawsuit, the civil suit against these extremists for what they did on January 6th. So this is something that didn't just affect me. I mean, it didn't just affect the Center on Extremism, but it really affected ADL as a whole. And, and all of the people out there who support ADL. You know, we're obviously also very concerned about what happened on January 6th. Yeah. So we're about a, a year removed from the uh, the insurrection and January 6th. And so I, I'm wondering to you, from your perspective, what has changed and what hasn't changed since January 6th? You, you, you've alluded to a couple things in terms of elected officials, some elected officials who have walked back some of their criticisms of what happened on that day, right? And But you, you've also alluded to, you know, the identification of many of these extremists or individuals who are associated with the, the riot. And so I'm wondering, to, in your perspective, what, what's really changed in the last year and what's actually even been done around it? I think the bottom line is not enough has changed and that, that we're still in a, a position of high risk. Although, you know, people will be, presumably more prepared for certain events um, or certain eventualities going forward. But that doesn't mean that they can help prevent them in the first place. On the good side, I will say that over 700 people have been arrested over the course of the past year for their illegal actions, their criminal actions related to January 6th. And those arrests continue to be made every week. The FBI is still making arrests related to January 6th. And so the law enforcement response to the storming of the Capitol building has been robust and aggressive. A number of those people have already pleaded guilty. Most of those have been relatively minor participants who are only charged with misdemeanors. We just recently had someone sentenced to the longest sentence so far for their role on January 6th, which was a little over five years. But most of the major cases haven't yet gone through the court system. And when we have to, we'll wait and see what happens there. On the other hand, the House Congressional Committee that was set up to investigate January 6th has not been supported by Republicans. Only two Republicans have actually joined that committee and helped 
in it. And there's just seems to be little interest on the part of, and I'm, I'm not trying to be partisan here, but it's just a fact, little interest on the part of many people in the Republican Party to do anything about what happened on January 6th or to make sure nothing like that happens again, or even to continue the condemnations of it. And because of that, the polarization, I think, you know, is far more likely to increase in the future going forward than decrease, that more and more people will be suspicious or angry about elections, that will refuse to accept the legitimacy of elections, or who will work more to actually try to manipulate or steer the outcome of elections through election boards or through other ways. And, you know, I'm normally a glass half full type of person. But I, I just don't see any sort of silver lining to what's happened so far. You know, I think we, just like the, the coronavirus pandemic is, the end of that is nowhere in sight. I don't think the end to some of these problems of political violence and polarization and election problems are likely to be solved anytime soon. Do you feel like some of these folks uh, and extremists actually benefit from this strong polarization that's happening. You, you mentioned that folks are moving further to the right and further to the left on things. Do you think that extremists in a, in a large, large sense are taking advantage of this, this moment that we find ourselves politically in this country? Well, extremists certainly try. Some may have had some success. It gets a little complicated because one of the things when, when there's when polarization occurs and one side or another becomes more radical, they don't necessarily leap to embrace extremists, many of whom have bad reputations and are you know, pariahs for one reason or another, but they set up institutions or groups or organizations of their own that may have similar ideas or slightly lighter version of those ideas that would be more acceptable. And we've seen this before. So for example, white supremacists have been among the most anti-Muslim people in the country. But after 9-11 and, and years after that, where there was a, a big increase in anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States, we didn't see people reach out to you know, white supremacists, move closer to white supremacy. What we saw were people with anti-Muslim sentiment setting up their own groups, which didn't have the baggage that white supremacy had. And unless there was an effort to you know, highlight how hateful those groups were, you know, seemed to have a better reputation or you know, it would be safer to join one of those groups than to join a white supremacist group if you have anti-Muslim animus. The same thing with anti-immigration views, right? White supremacists are the most anti-immigration people out there, but there are other options for people who are anti-immigration to join people who have extreme anti-immigration views, but they don't come with the bad reputation or baggage of white supremacists. And so, you know, I think we're kind of likely to see and we already are kind of seeing this happen again, where you'll find new groups emerge that are more radical than what we had before, but they're not necessarily composed of the traditional extremists. And another thing we're also seeing is just a lot of increased activity and fringe activity and problems in general. You know, new types of things like the rise of QAnon and all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories related to that, which brought in, you know, probably more than a million people you know, most of them newly radicalized, most of them who had not been part of any sort of far right or fringe group or movement before. And 
all sorts of people, some for money, some for ideology, trying to exploit all of this and setting up their own groups and trying to raise money, trying to, you know, get attention. Um, it's just creating a very difficult and complicated landscape. Definitely, definitely. And, and we can we can talk about QAnon for hours, honestly. It's it's such a fascinating issue and how it's really you know, made its way almost into a mainstream kind of audience in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, I think as we kind of, uh, maybe they'll have to be part two also, but we know when we talk to folks, we try to be optimistic here in the Pacific Northwest. We try to uplift people and, and highlight the folks that are doing the really good work to fight back against extremism, against hate, against anti-Semitism. You know, Mark, you, you've probably seen a lot over your, you know, so, several decades at ADL and just being a consumer of the internet, you, you know, you, you probably see some pretty harsh things as well. So, you know, what do you do to practice self-care just in general, right? I, I think what I do is I go on Reddit and I go on iBleach, right? Or you go to other other places that that try to make you forget, you know, the ills of the world. And so what do you do to, to stay optimistic and happy and, 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 you know, grounded in the work that you do? Well, it's true that, you know, working in areas like extremism and terrorism is not for everybody. And it's not for everybody in the long term. That can kind of grind you down. That can get to you. When I first started, I was so full of energy and intellectual curiosity about all of this that I would spend all my time doing this. And it was recreation as well as work, but that was not sustainable in the long run. That just that's that's just opening you up to burn you out, right? And over the years, I discovered I need to have more of a sort of a work-life separation. I need to have certain outlets where I could spend time doing things that were just not related to extremism. And I, I basically, I basically have two um, that, in very different ways, kind of take me away from. Uh, the extremism world and the ADL world and any other sort of world like that. On the one hand, and I am admittedly an extreme geek, I have a hobby of board strategy gaming, particularly board war gaming, with a lot of complicated board war games, including one in particular that has an inches thick rule book. And it's sort of extremely complex and extremely intense to play. And like chess, when you're playing it, the outside world kind of fades away and all you're doing is because every move is important and everything is crucial. You're only focusing on what you're doing and what your opponent is doing and it allows you to really concentrate on that and, and not care about anything else, right? Other than, other than what that light machine gun may do to your squad as you move towards an objective. In a very different way, my sort of my other hobby is roadside photography. Right. I'm fascinated in sort of the back byways and, of America. And what I do is I, I go out into backcountry and rural areas of Ohio, especially Appalachian, Ohio. And I take photographs of interesting things that I see from the roadside. I actually set up a camera mount on, my, on my, the door to my car. So I can sort of the equivalent of a tripod only with a vehicle. And I take photographs of all barns, mine entrances, abandoned factories, farmhouses, people, whatever, whatever strikes my fancy. And I don't have any particular destination in mind. I don't have any particular deadline. I just explore the countryside and go around either by myself or with a friend. And it's utterly relaxing because there's no, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's complete. 
know, unless a, unless a road is flooded or something, it's complete freedom, right? No deadlines, no, you don't have to be at point X by time Y. And so in a very different way for my board wargaming, you know, I don't have to worry about extremism or terrorism and I can just be out in the country air, in the forests or in the farmland or wherever. And so it's very relaxing. It's very peaceful. That's awesome. That, I mean, it sounds... It sounds fun, and I'm curious to know what that board game is also <laughs> that you're alluding to. The board game is called Advanced Squad Leader. It was published originally in 1986, descended from an older game called Squad Leader, which was first published in 1977. And it's popular among war gamers, although war gamers are a very niche audience. There are far fewer of us than there were in the old days. It's one of the most genius game designs I've ever had the opportunity to play, and so I've not only you know played it, but I've actually designed modules for it and written strategy articles about it, and you know been involved with playtesting other people's products. So there's a whole world uh, that you can get involved with more than just playing it. Right. And if anybody from anybody <laughs> from the company that produces Advanced Squad Leader hears this, I, I want you know I want a free game. You know, because I've done so much to promote it here on this podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you know, you you fit right right in here in the Pacific Northwest. We love our board games out here, um, and I know that I, you know there's there's a big community here too as well. There's an ASL tournament in Washington um, every year, and I have actually played ASL Advanced Squad Leader in a hotel room in Seattle with an old friend of mine while I was I was in Seattle to do the law enforcement training. <laughs> um, so you know I've, I've actually done that there where you are I mean never a bad time you know when you're in Seattle regardless of what you're doing so you know I want to end on a optimistic note as well and you know earlier you deemed yourself a, an optimist and so and we asked this question to each of our guests on the podcast is what, what makes you optimistic for the future what, what's something that, that really gives you hope, especially during these really crazy trying times between the pandemic and, and our polarized legal landscape? What really gives you hope? One thing that I do rely on is something that I've come to believe over the years that I've been doing this, which is that the number of people of goodwill outnumber the people of ill will. And they want to do what's right. They want justice done. They want fairness. And if those people can be organized, if those people can be mobilized, they're going to win out. And it's that sort of thing that has thwarted almost every extremist movement, you know, in the United States history, sometimes taking many years, sometimes much more quickly. But certainly the Pacific Northwest, for example, is full of, of people of goodwill. I will say we lost one recently, Bill Moreland, who was a longtime reporter for the Spokane Spokesman Review whose sort of beat was extremism and for decades covered extremism in the Pacific Northwest. He passed away recently at the age of 75. But there are so many young people who are concerned about white supremacy and anti-government extremism and conspiracy theories and all of these sorts of things, willing and able and ready to fill his shoes and to fill many other shoes. And it's those people that I think we're going to have to rely on to to make sure that people of goodwill, you know, continue to prevail. Well, I'm so honored and pleased to have one of those people of goodwill on the podcast today. And, you know, again, I, I so appreciate the work that you do. And I so appreciate the, the levity that you bring to this work, because again, it, like you mentioned before, it is draining. 
And one of those places of levity is your Twitter account. And so, you know, I'll do a, a quick plug for Mark. He's a Mark Pikavich, who is a senior research fellow at ADL Center on Extremism. And his specialty is right-wing extremism. Uh, he, you can follow him on Twitter at E-G-A-V-A-C-T-I-P, which is his last name. So backwards, which is something I realized the other day. So, but Mark, uh, appreciate you on the, on the podcast today and looking forward to having future conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thanks.